Going Linux, episode 334. Listener feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want, you can send us feedback at our email at goinglinux at gmail.com or our voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Hi, Bill. Hi, Larry. I'm back. Yeah, welcome back. You've got all the power issues and the internet issues and <laughs> other unspecified issues behind you, right? Yes, I'm actually connected back to the real world. So, oh, wait a minute. I wasn't real. No, I'm back to the the real world again. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. No, yeah. I I I didn't have power for like three weeks and internet for two weeks, and it was I was starting to go into jonesing mode. So yeah. it's good to be back. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm I'm glad you're back so. in the 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 real world, <laughs> such as it is. <laughs> yes, the real world, the intra intertubes, as mm -hmm. we like to say. So you're back to but gaming, anyway, yeah. and you're back to podcasting and it sounds quieter okay. than you are yeah i'm in my new studio it's still not complete but it's getting there yeah. it, but i don't have anybody banging on walls all i have is the snoring tweeny at the you know, but other than that she's sleeping and happy and so she's it's really nice hey it's so quiet here that i have to actually say um Hey, I need to go make some noise. <laughs> it's too quiet. No, no, it's actually really nice. Uh, so, you know, hopefully everything works. And uh, you know, had internet challenges. I was telling you a little bit. I sent you an email about they they put a uh, when they were hooking up my internet, they put a nail through one of the wires. Yeah. <laughs> One of these little finds, and it took them forever to find it. But they, because they couldn't figure out why it wouldn't connect, and when it would connect, it would be bad. And as soon as they replace that wire, it's like the golden ticket. Everything started working again. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, yeah those so, those kinds of problems are really tough to find sometimes. Yeah, I kept saying, I think it's got to be one because you know they replaced the modem, and then they said, nope, that's not it. And then they replaced the receiver, and it, that had a problem. Um, and then they said, well, I don't understand it. And I said, why don't you replace the wiring harness? Oh, so, of course, he doesn't have one on his truck, mm -hmm. so he has to order one. So he comes out, yeah. and as soon as he took the old one off, put the new one in, and made sure he didn't put any holes in the new one, mm -hmm. it all worked. Kaboom. Amazing. Nice. Kaboom. Yeah, so I'm really happy to be back. So how was your week? Oh, I had a good week. I have. Uh, it was an uneventful week. So the the best kind. Uh, I wish right? mine was uneventful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, at least yours is trending in the right direction. <laughs> yes, it's trending in the right direction now. So let's start. All right. Well, our first email is from Logan, who explained why the 64-bit download of a distribution is called AMD 64. So he wrote, 
64-bit is listed as AMD because AMD created the current 64-bit and Intel adopted that. At least that's the logic I use for the reason. And we also got an explanation from Ken. So I've combined two emails together here. I'm sorry, Bill. Um, That's cheating. (laughs) Well, it was a short one. Uh, Who expanded on that and said... AMD didn't create the first 64-bit CPU. They existed long before that. Intel's 64-bit was a new architecture, IA64. AMD extended the x86, or IA32, architecture to 64-bit, hence AMD64. Intel followed on with their own extension to the x86 architecture called IA32E, later EM64T. AMD 64 and EM 64T are software compatible, but there are architectural differences. AMD 64 nomenclature is a distro-specific choice. Ubuntu and their derivatives use AMD 64, while CentOS and OpenSUSE use x86 underscore 64. Yeah, I've seen the x86 64 nomenclature before and. That's probably a little clearer, yeah. I think, for most people. Is it is it scary that I actually understood all that and have seen all that self <laughs> all those <laughs> designators before? You know, I wasn't all that familiar with the history, especially the EM sixty four T and all that other stuff. But uh, thanks, Ken, for the explanation. Yeah, thanks, Ken. I always like to reading about the latest processors, so I recognize a lot of that. Yeah. Anyway, Daniel explained it. Uh, even more, why it's called AMD 64, and he said in 1989, Intel began development of a 64-bit architecture called IA64. When announced in 2000, it was discovered by would-be users to be incompatible with the traditional x86 instruction set with a large amount of pre-compiled software that was incompatible with the new architecture. The platform was relegated to Unix and mainframe use. The last IA64 Itanium processor was released in February 2017 as the Kitson Core. No further hardware was will be available for in this architecture. In response to the announcement, AMD announced an x86 compatible 64-bit architecture called x86-64 or AMD64 on a K8 or later chip line processor manufacturer VIA jumped on board and sales took off as existing 32-bit code would still run on these new chips. Microsoft announced Windows XP support, Windows XP Pro 64, would be released for this platform but not for Itanium. After a year of brisk sales by AMD, in both server and desktop processors, Intel finally caved and announced an EM64T in March 2004, with the first chip ship shipping in June of that year. Since AMD developed the instruction set, it's frequently called AMD64. That makes sense. Yeah. So now we know the history of why things are called AMD64. So it's 64-bit, and bottom line is... If you're looking for a distribution of Linux and you see 32-bit and you see AMD 64 and your machine is labeled as a 64-bit processor, use the AMD 64 
even though your processor is Intel and not AMD, because it's just a label. Yes. There we okay. go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm wow. glad that's clear. So uh, Heath expanded even further, senior host and junior vice president Minion. <laughs> we, I think we junior. Both, yeah, I don't know. Junior vice president, though. Hey, that's. Uh, uh, hey, wait a minute now. What? I, I get demoted already. Heath, Jeez. now you're just making up titles. Okay. <laughs> in the last listener feedback, episode three thirty two, a listener wrote in confused about the AMD sixty four builds of respective software packages, asking where the Intel ones would be. I once had similar confusion and. This is what I learned. When Intel published the 32-bit instruction set for the then shiny 386 CPU, the instruction set was dubbed the 386 instruction set as the 486 and Pentium CPUs used the same set. The instruction set has come to be known as the I386 or X86X to cover 486 and 586 for all CPUs, both Intel and, and AMD who used the same instruction set. When 64-bit CPUs came to the consumer market, AMD were the first to draft the 64-bit extensions to the 386 instruction set. The extension means the original 32-bit instructions still work for backwards compatibility. That is, you can run 32-bit software on the 64-bit CPUs. As AMD released it first, they became known as the AMD 64 or X64 instruction set. Intel later adopted the same instruction scheme, and so AMD 64 and X64 instructions can be used on, the, on both Intel and AMD CPUs. Hope this helps. Heath in Perth, Australia. So Heath took it from the software instruction set perspective as opposed to strictly hardware chip, and I think that helps to, to clarify things as well. Or maybe it just muddies the waters more. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, I remember. I remember the uh, the first uh, computer that I uh, really fell in love with. I thought it was just the biggest powerhouse. It was a four A six DX sixty six. If you remember back in the day, the DX what mean meant that it had the coprocessor. <laughs> yes, that's right. And then you had the LX. You remember those? Yes, the, the I do. Because. Yeah, so it was just that brings back memories. I remember that was such a powerhouse, and now it couldn't even run any of my games. So I moving right along. Yes, okay. The <laughs> <laughs> played a lot of Doom on that one. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Rick wrote, "Hi Larry, hi Bill. I've been a listener for quite some time, but fell off regular listening over the last year or so. I'm catching up and just listened to." Number 319 on G GRSync. Unfortunately, the link to the document from Aculand University no longer works. Did you by chance archive a copy of that document? Thanks. 73RickNZ2I. Yeah, so I checked out the the link on GRSync, and it was instructions on... Um, how to use it, I guess, uh, if I remember correctly. And no, I didn't archive a copy of it. And it looks like, although Auckland, New Zealand, or Auckland University, rather, had that document in the public, they've put it behind a login wall, and it's no longer accessible. So I'm going to have to go back in and 
put a note where that link used to be, and maybe I can find something similar that illustrates the same thing to replace that link. But uh, thanks, Rick, for letting us know there was a problem. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Okay, Barbara writes us about cloning a drive with DD. (sighs) At least it's not about AMD 64. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Be careful what you ask for. I knew you were going to say that. Yes. Okay. Cloning a drive with DD. Hi, guys. Just wanted to drop you a note to say that I really enjoy the Going Linux podcast. I returned to GNU Linux in 2011 when I installed Ubuntu on my laptop and have been a very happy Linux user ever since. I found episode 331 interesting and informative, especially your discussion regarding backups. I do like that you included the dd command to create a full drive or backup partition. I do have a few suggestions that would make the dd command more useful and less scary, especially since the dd command does not provide progress by default. So, no progress bar. First... I think you need to use the sudo command as the prefix to the dd command. You're probably right there. Also, to ensure that the command writes out full record blocks, the conv parameter, no trunk, uh, needs to be added. Keep this in mind. To clone SDA, the system hard drive, to the destination drive SDB, external drive in my case, the command becomes sudo dd space if equals, and then a whole bunch of stuff, right? So the source drive, (laughs) the destination drive, and then bs equals 64k, then conv equals no trunk, n-o-t-r-u-n-c, comma, no error, comma, sync. And there are no spaces between the commas and the next word. So a little longer command than we had specified in our episode 331. Uh, And if you want to see what it looks like, it's in the show notes. Yeah. The one disconcerting issue with DD is that it does not display progress as cloning occurs. To ease that feeling that you are not sure if it's working, use the following command. sudo pkill, p-k-i-l-l, space, dash, usr1, space, DD and USR is all in caps. If you want to have a progress displayed periodically, you can use the watch command and use the number of seconds between displaying the cloning progress in the command. So you would type watch and then a space and then dash n and the number of seconds. And then in quotes, sudo pkill dash user one. For instance, to display cloning progress every 15 seconds, and then there's a command there. We'll include all this stuff in the show notes. Please feel free to provide this information to your listeners. Keep up the good work. You are doing a great service to the Linux community to take the fear out of using Linux by Barbara. Well, thanks, Barbara. We really appreciate yeah, thanks. that. <laughs> Actually, uh, that's that's pretty uh, pretty clever. Yeah, I never thought about doing it that way. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, even though it's command line, which can be scary to some people, um, and we were trying to read or I was trying to read some of the commands, it's not as difficult as it seems. You'll see when we write it out. It's pretty straightforward. Okay, our next email comes from Adrian, and he has a proposal for a crowd of new minions. Ooh, new minions? Mm -hmm. Let Let me read on. Hi, Larry and Bill. 
I enjoy to binge listen to your podcasts on very long drives, which happen every two or three months. You guys do a good job introducing an excellent operating system to people familiar with the W. Linux needs all the exposure it can get. But when the tech gets a gets thick, I find myself talking back at you guys. This happens when I think I know about the subject you're discussing. That's why I listen to you while I'm alone in my car. <laughs> why am I talking to you? Because every once in a while, the technical content can be improved, and we we agree. Yes. In my humble opinion, examples would be fill, filling a root file system with a backup gone wrong and the last episode cloning disks. I would have loved to hear about what cloning is and how it can be used. Do you clone to another drive or to a file? What can be done with a clone in a file? What to watch out for when cloning a single partition? I would have tried to explain about whole hard disks, partition tables, partitions, and file systems, and the advantages or disadvantages of not cloning. The longest talk I've had with you guys during the <laughs> last trip was on what is the purpose of knowing how to make a clone if you, if you didn't explain how to restore it. Mm. Pitfalls. What happens to the bootstrap loader in Classic and or GPT partitioned? What if my root file system was cloned to an old 80 gig hard spindle hard drive? My root system drive is now defective, and I'd like to restore it to a spanking new 120 gigabyte SSD. I guess we all have the same problem. Too much to do, too little time. But I only binge listen to two to four episodes at a time. I usually stop at at good thing nobody saw me talking and leave it at that. <laughs> because most of the stuff I listen to is old anyways. But tonight I have an idea. What if we set up a minion network? You guys select some people, support engineers, Linux coders, retirees, who like to research or whatever want to help. And mail the subjects and questions to them before you record the show. If these people know the answers or have something to say, they will they will answer within a few three days. I'd like to offer myself as the first candidate. I do not always have time. I travel frequently, but I would like to contribute. There may be more people that could help you find some answers more quickly or more accurately who'd like to join this minion network. I really appreciate the hard work you are doing to further the Linux platform. Please let me know what you think. Regards, Adrian. Actually, that's a great idea, and uh, uh, I think we've both both of us always said we we don't know everything. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, so you know, Adrian makes some great points, but I think we kind of are to new users and stuff. We're trying to give them just an overview. But he does have some good suggestions, and I can see where we can make some improvements. What do you think, Larry? Yeah, I like the idea of asking our listeners to contribute to the podcast. And let's just put it this way. If you are interested in becoming part of the Minion Network, <laughs> now we've got a label for it, the Minion Network, <laughs> uh, just drop us a line on email um, or put something in the Google Plus chat, whatever's most convenient for you. 
and um, let let me know so that we can send you a link to our show notes before we actually uh, record so that you can contribute any additional corrections or additional information on one of the topics that we have. And we'll still record them using the same process we have, but we'll just uh, take a few minutes or a few days to get your input on it to make it a better show. So thanks yeah. for the suggestion. That's really good, Adrian. Um, he's got a few questions in here that maybe we can address on cloning. Uh, maybe we can go back on that. Um, so yeah. do we clone to another drive or to a file? I've done it both ways. I prefer to clone to another hard drive. Um, unfortunately, what usually happens is you get a new computer with a larger drive and now any backup drives you have aren't big enough to hold the whole drive, uh, as, as a backup. Um, so one of the advantages of cloning to a file is that the file will only be as big as the data that you're backing up as opposed to being a bit for bit image of the entire drive. So if you have a 120 gigabyte drive, for example, you need a 120 gigabyte backup drive to store it to if um, if you're making a, a complete clone of the drive uh, or or bigger. Uh, and if you're if you're uh, backing up to a file and your 120 gigabyte drive is 50 percent full, then you only need 60 gigabytes to make a backup because it's only got 60 gigabytes worth of data in it. And that's as big as the file needs to be. The other consideration is one that you brought up, Adrian, which is the restoring part of it. And I think we've talked about restoring on previous episodes. I may have talked about that with Tom when we originally did um, an episode or two on backups. Um, but um, that's way back in the past. So just to address that, let's say you, you backed up your 120 gigabyte drive to a, I don't know, 200 gigabyte backup drive. And you made a clone of the drive, and now your cloned image is uh, is a 200 gigabyte drive. I mean, the data's there, but it's 200 gigabytes. You can't simply restore it to your 120 gigabyte drive because it's too big; it won't fit. So, what you need to do is, before you do the backup, you need to partition the drive that you're backing up to the destination drive so that it is as big as or smaller than the the uh, drive you're backing up. And if it's a bit for bit clone, it's got to be the same size. So look at the number of bits, make it exactly the same size. So you don't have a problem restoring it when you come back. Um, and with a file backup, a file-based backup, you really don't have that problem because uh, unless you're, you're, recovering from a crash and you're restoring to a smaller drive than you started with. And it's significantly smaller so that it won't hold the, the full amount of data. Then that's the only time you would have a problem. So for the most part, I would recommend backing up to a file uh, unless you have a spare drive. That's exactly, you know, an exact copy of the hardware copy of the one that your uh, computer contains. And if it's one of those on a chip SSDs, that might be a bit of a problem. So you need to be a little bit careful. Do you have any experience, uh, Bill, on using these kinds of backups? I've backed up uh, to the same size hard drive, but I've never tried doing different sizes and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, 
other than that, uh, if if anybody knows my history, I usually nuke and pave anyway. Yeah. But <laughs> but no, uh, that, that's the only time I've really backed up, and it saved my bacon once or twice in my time. But uh, I, I tried to, if I'm going to back up, I try to have two identical drives, uh, or as identical as I can make them. Yeah. And so that's just me, but uh, you know, I I don't do any of the crazy stuff. Usually, I end up killing the distro anyway so it's just a new can pay for me right and most of my backups quite frankly are backing up the the data and not the entire drive um, when i was using windows i would always make a, a complete copy of the hard drive on a, a mirror drive simply because I didn't want to go through the pain of reinstalling windows and going through 5,000 updates and waiting an hour between each update for it to install and reboot and all that kind of crap. So, uh, I, you know, when I was making a backup, I would always make a whole disk backup so that I would only have to start from where I left off. But with Linux, um, my backups are more to prevent loss of data during a crash or a hard drive failure or other disaster. And so I'm just backing up the data. So uh, backing it up to files is fine, using the same software to restore those files, or uh, restoring a portion of the files and, and keeping on the active live machine that I use day to day, only the things that I want to use and keeping the backup stored somewhere so that I have an archive if I do need to go back and look at really old stuff. That's kind of my approach. And like you, I, I do a nuke and pave. If I'm restoring a drive, uh, I usually install the latest version of the, the operating system, get all the updates and then restore the data. Yeah, I, I uh, keep a lot of the files, um, um, in that are important that I don't want to lose up in uh, my Google Drive or Dropbox or whatever. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I've used but a I combination mean, of that and hard drive yeah, backups combi- as well. It's kind of a combination right now. Yeah. Okay. So there we go. So again, thanks, Adrian. And uh, if you're interested in becoming a part of the Minion Network, let us know. Yeah. Okay. Adrian also sent us this. Hi, Larry and Bill, who was dearly missed on episode 330. Uh, good. I'm not the only computer hoarder. There's Greg and he's listened to your show as well. Well, while we're off topic, let me share something. <laughs> well, that was the topic, but anyway, <laughs> my current hobby project involves reanimating my four megahertz bullet Z 80 CPM computer CPM. Holy crap. Ooh. With 120 kilobytes of bank-switched RAM. This is an antique. The huge hard drive. Yes. The, hu- the huge 100... The, the, yeah. The huge hard drive won't spin up, and it's a power supply problem. The hard, des- the hard disk is five and a quarter inch full-size bezel, has four platters and eight heads, and stores a whopping 15 megabytes. This statement sounded better 30 plus years ago. (laughs) Today, the huge power on surge can no longer be sourced by those aged capacitors in the power supply. Wow. Linux has some great tools for old computers. I managed to make images of my five and a quarter CPM floppies using DD. 
after setting the floppy disk parameters to set FDPRM and then reading the image with CPMLS, copying them with CPMCP, all of these programs are in the current repositories. Next, I built the Z80 emulator. There we go. An emulator. That's going to help. In Z80 pack. The source code to CPM is open sourced after someone from Redmond killed digital research. So the Z80 emulator runs a true copy of CPM3. It now has all my old files, source code to programs I wrote 30 plus years ago. I was able to run the Z80 assembler and build a new CPM3 for my bullet, wrote it back to the diskette using Linux, and now actually boots my bullet without the hard disk. Uh, you're not as excited as I am. Well, I guess my purpose is the same as Greg's. I have to uh, to have a good time with old stuff. Analytics helps doing that too. Adrian. Wow. This Wait real antique. It's not just old. That is antique. But that is awesome. <laughs> old stuff. Wow. This this thing that's is, awesome though. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that there's not so much rust on that thing that uh, it just seizes up. But hey, it's great that you've used this combination of, uh, you know, the the original source code and an emulator and floppy disks to reconstitute this ancient machine and have it boot even without a hard drive. That's fantastic. But I have to put in the amount of effort put in is not necessarily, uh, you know, you don't get a lot of rewards except just personal gratification. And as someone doing it just because they want to, just that's awesome. I, I just kudos to you. I, I really, really, really enjoyed that one. Yeah, absolutely. And hey, like you said, it's just. Having a good time with old stuff. What more can you ask for, right? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it just it's not super profitable or anything. It's just someone's doing it because they love to do it. Yep. And, you know, I bet he learned a lot doing it, too. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. All right. Our next email comes from Dave, and he's confused. Well, join the club, Dave. <laughs> I stay that way. <laughs> he writes, Hello, Bill and Larry. Love Going Linux. Going Linux and Leo Laporte's Tech Guy show are two podcasts I religiously listen to. I really appreciate you guys. I was converted to Linux when I installed Ubuntu 8 on a machine for my 85-year-old mother. She was using Windows and I got support calls many times a week until I installed Linux on her machine. Sounds familiar. The only support call I got from her after that was a year and a half later with a strange screen appearing that she had never seen before. Hmm. It asked for her login password. There had been a loss of power at her apartment and the computer had not ever been shut down <laughs> uh, before. so it was the login screen that was the strange yeah, screen, the login screen. that's okay. awesome there we go a year and a half uh so it hadn't been shut down before that after that i never got another call every time i saw her i asked if the computer was still working and she always said yes i use it every day hmm. and never turned it off apparently <laughs> yeah yeah, now my confusion. I use Linux Mint 18 Sarah. 
I am using the machine as a pretty standard desktop and install everything I use from the software manager. Under the update manager, I am regularly presented with Linux kernel headers and Linux firmware updates. I value good security and have a stable machine, which it always has been. When should I update the Linux kernel or the Linux kernel headers and or the Linux firmware? 73 Dave. Oh, well, I have a different uh, policy than Larry, I think. Mine is when they come, when it presents the updates, I usually wait for about a week or so before I install them just in case there's any errors. But I think, Larry, you pretty much install them right away, don't you? I do install them right away. And as far as the yeah. kernel is concerned, there are two kinds of updates uh, in the kernel. Uh, there are lots of other kinds of updates, but these, there are two main kinds of uh, updates that relate to your email, Dave. One is uh, updates to drivers that are included in the Linux kernel, uh, and the other is security updates. So the driver mm -hmm. updates, unless you get some new hardware that hasn't been supported or hasn't been supported well in the drivers that are included in the previous Linux kernel, you probably don't need the new kernel. On the other hand, the updates, the security updates, are what is really driving most people's updates to the kernel, especially if there's been some sort of breach that affects Linux that you've heard of in the news. Uh, by that time, the Linux kernel, if that's where the security breach occurs, has been updated and you do want to update the security updates for the kernel. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to install a new kernel, but that the security patches um, are the ones that you need. And sometimes, like I said, the security is, is not uh, the security patches are not for the kernel itself. Uh, they're for an application or for a driver that's outside of the kernel or for some sort of uh, library that's outside of the kernel. Um, so the, the critical thing is update for whatever software security updates are there. And if uh, a Linux kernel update indicates in the notes that it includes security updates, I would apply that Linux kernel just to get those security updates because you never know uh, when somebody's going to attack your computer, especially if it's a an internet-based attack and you're on the internet all the time, you should be, you know, you should be protected. If it's a an update, for example, that uh, addresses a hardware vulnerability, let's say like a keylogger on your keyboard or something like that, um, that's a little less risky because I'm assuming that you don't carry your your uh, desktop computer and your keyboard and your monitor and all that around with you, unless, of course, it's a laptop, in which case maybe it is something you need to be aware of. <laughs> but it's a little harder to install a, a hardware keylogger under the keys of your keyboard on a, uh, on a laptop. So, again... It really depends on how security conscious you are or if you get new hardware. So if you get new hardware and it's not working all that well, update the kernel if there is an update and maybe that'll give you support for the new hardware. Uh, if it's security related, just make sure that you get all the security uh, updates and patches from, in your case, Linux Mint. And if you know there's anything that you've heard about that uh, is a malware infection or something that affects the Linux affects Linux as well as Windows and Mac. 
then I would look to the Linux kernel to see if there's an update that addresses that. Uh, otherwise, just expect that your security update is coming to you through the regular updates from Linux Mint. That's my advice. I'm sure there will be others who disagree. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the other thing to be concerned about is, you know, is your computer actually a server and downtime is more of a risk than security patches? Uh, I'm not sure whether that's ever a wise move, but, you know, I don't run a server, so maybe it is, uh, in which case maybe you should not replace the Linux kernel from the philosophy of if it's not broke, don't fix it. Uh, just make sure you've got the security patches. Yep, sounds good. All right. Our next email is from Jan, or probably, looking at the signature at the bottom, is probably Jan. Thank you for making great podcasts. What makes it especially great is the timestamps, an example for others to follow. Keep up the good work. Best regards. And in the signature, it says Med Venlig Hilsen. I probably butchered that, but apparently that is best regards in Jan's native tongue. We got uh, another email from Brune who wrote about our use of Discord, of the Discord app. He, he writes, hi, Larry. Hi, Bill. I'm from Italy. And I've been listening to your podcast for about a year now. I like your show very much for two main reasons. The first is because I am a Linux addict, and the second is because my English is very poor, and I'm taking advantage of your show to improve my knowing of the language. So thanks a lot. Anyway, I'm writing to you because in your last podcast, you said that you are now using Discord in place of Skype because it works very well and because it's open source. But in the Discord site, I did not find any reference to the fact that that's open software. And also, Wikipedia says that it's proprietary software. Where am I wrong? Have I misunderstood something? Thanks again for your show, and keep up your fantastic work for the Linux community. Bye, Brun. P.S. I'm sorry for my embarrassing English. Hey, Brun, you did excellent. And... Um, Larry and myself talked about this, and I, I think where the misunderstanding comes in is, is they use an open source codec right. for the, for the uh, audio. Right. And so when we were talking about it, I had made a comment that, um, that the audio co codec was uh, open source. But yeah, I, I figured that this Discord app would be proprietary, but it met a couple of our um, – our, our criteria one it worked yes. <laughs> which it's always good uh two that it had incorporated uh some open source in it and it was also easy to install for linux users and it's cross-platform so it kind of fit um a lot of uh, ch uh check boxes that we like to see but yeah we know that discord is not uh open source but they do incorporate some open source elements in it yep Absolutely. I don't think I could have said that any better, Bill. Okay. Uh, John asks about Patreon. Aloha, Larry and Bill. Thank you for your most recent episode. While whole disk cloning on Linux, it was extremely timely and interesting. While I already knew about Clonezilla and have been planning to use it to back up my entire dual boot 
hard drive on my Lenovo laptop, your episode confirmed that it was probably the best solution for my needs. Okay, John, stop the planning and start the backing up. (laughs) Planning doesn't help. (laughs) Hopefully you've already done it. Uh, Mahalo, he says, uh, your friend from the big island of Hawaii, John, a.k.a. Island of Tiki. P.S. I can't find you guys on Patreon. I like to support my favorite Linux podcasts and distros through monetary contributions and Patreon makes it so I don't forget to contribute regularly. Well, John, we don't have a Patreon page and we don't use Patreon for collecting, you know, monthly contributions from, uh, from our listeners. Uh, two reasons. First, um, it's, one more thing I would have to manage. And two, I I really am not one for asking people to donate on a monthly basis and automatically setting up withdrawals from, you know, wherever they are. I'd rather just have people contribute when they want to. Uh, and it sounds like you want to contribute on a regular basis, but I'm just not comfortable with doing that. So thanks. Uh, contribute when you remember. That's all I can say. And thanks for your contributions. And thanks for the kind words, John. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, John. Okay. Our next email comes from Dennis, and he comments on our cloning episode. I'm, I'm seeing a theme here, Larry. Yeah. People like cloning. <laughs> we've had hard drive processors, just uh, hard drives. Now we've had uh, a lot of cloning. So, okay. Uh, really, guys, two words. Macrium Reflect. All file system supported password protected whole disk and partitions have verified data option paid and free versions and GUI driven. The only one I've, I would even consider off your list would be Clonezilla, which is rather archaic as are the rest on the, on the list. I use command line only when necessary, which is not very often nowadays with these modern distros. Let's get people to embrace going links from Windows on Mac, not scaring them away or wasting their time with unnecessary hundred character command lines. Thanks, Dennis. Ooh. Okay, well, um, I don't know if it's unnecessary to share the command lines, especially if you know you're using the command line. And as far as scaring people um, with archaic software. I'm not sure that the backup solutions that are available for Mac or Windows are any less archaic than they are on Linux. There's not really been any advancement, as far as I know, in the area of backup, except for cloud backup. And the cloud backup is dependent on your internet connection. And if your internet connection goes down, you've lost a connection to both be able to backup and to be able to restore. So that introduces a bit of risk that I'm not willing to take. So we're relegated to backup solutions that work, work well, and have been around a while. And I'd rather, quite frankly, use something that's been around a while than, and, and works than something that's brand new that may have some bugs in it and in these days may even have some um, malware attached to it. So on the other hand, Dennis, if you have a more modern, better solution that allows you to back up on Linux, that would be great. 
Most of the distributions these days provide some sort of backup solution as part of the distribution. Um, and I, I, I know that Ubuntu Mate and Ubuntu proper provide uh, a backup utility that they label as backup, but it is using, um, what is it using? It's using Deja Dupe, which again mm-hmm. is a relatively old program that uses a combination of DD and other things in the back end to, to make it work. So yeah, uh, even the modern solutions on Linux rely on the old archaic w- proven, uh, command line to make it work. Your thoughts yeah. after that rant, uh, uh <laughs> Bill. Actually, I have a, just a couple thoughts. One, um, saying that some of this stuff is archaic, uh, I think it's a little harsh. It might be older, but, uh, in, Anytime I uh, am going to be using software, I'm not, not always because it's not always available. I like to know that other people have looked at that code and have fixed it. And, you know, just Clonezilla I've used. I still use an old version of Clonezilla just because it works. It might not be pretty. It might not be, you know. But anytime I see a paid and free version, that that doesn't mean it sets off any red flags. But... I, I tend to like uh, programs that I can actually, you know, feel not, you know, I can, I can look at, you can look at the code if you want, but you don't know, I like to know that other people have looked at it are a lot smarter and more talented than I am. Um, and a lot of these uh, new shiny uh, backups uh, tend to use the old technologies, and, I mean, all they're doing is incorporating. I mean, a good example, uh, it's not backup, but uh, um, Discord, it's a proprietary uh, software, but it uses uh, an open source codec. So, I mean, it just, beca- and just because it's been around a while doesn't make it archaic. It might make it, I would consider... Um, more reliable because people have looked at it and have improved upon it. So, you know, I don't think we were scaring away anything because we we did cover uh, ones with uh, user a nice user interface and one with command line uh, versions. And I used to be where I'd only want to use you know uh, graphical user interfaces, but Larry kind of got me. Uh, uh, where sometimes I just prefer to enter in the command line because it's one line of instructions instead of having to click uh, 12 buttons. So I think it was just a little bit harsh. Uh, there's something for everybody, but I appreciate you telling us about this other one, and now I'll, I'll have to look at it. But uh, just because it's old doesn't make it archaic, and I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I don't want to argue that point, but I just... I thought that was just a tad bit harsh, and that's just me. But uh, I really appreciate your feedback, and I will look at that uh, that that one you recommended and see what see what it's like. Right. Yeah, and maybe I was a bit harsh with my comments as well. But uh, I think there's an argument to be made that backup software needs to be made easier to use, especially when mm-hmm. you're using a graphical interface. And you're clicking buttons and walking through. But I think Deja Dupe and the the improvements made to that particular utility that are incorporated into Ubuntu and its derivatives 
is is pretty close to being foolproof and easy to use. Um, still some yeah. room for improvement there, but it's basically just uh, once you've got it set up, it's just uh, acknowledging that, yes, you can run now or no, I want to pause or just let it run. I mean, it, it you yeah. can set it up so that it just happens in the background and you never have to think about it unless there's a crash. So well, I think that's great. I, I also... I also just want to say that we both, uh, you know, uh, we we try to be diplomatic and and, and uh, appreciate everybody's opinion, but we have our own opinions too. And some and and so and we'd like to say we're not we're not saying that your opinion is not valuable because it is. It's it's always good to see uh, another viewpoint. Yeah. But we we will let you know what our opinions are, and and uh, frankly, I think that would. We both have strong opinions of that one because I've had backups fail because of software. So when something works, then it's been around a while and someone calls it archaic. It's like, yeah, it might be old, but it still works. And yeah. sometimes it's, you know, anyway, thanks very much, Dennis. And like I said, we appreciate it. And I will look at that new one. And if it's as good as you say it is, I might have to, <laughs> I might have to be issuing an apology saying, hey, he was right. This is really great. Okay. We'll take a look. Yeah. Okay, calling comments on uh, guess what, Bill? Um, whole disk cloning. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say the weather. Okay. So. Yeah. So, hi, Larry and Bill. I found the podcast <laughs> on whole disk cloning very informative and helpful. There are a couple of backup programs that I have been using that can clone partitions. Here we go. Maybe there's something new in this list. There is a command line program called FS Archiver. It's available in most repositories. It's very easy to use. It's my go-to application for partition backup. There's a quick start guide at fsarchiver.org slash quick start. We'll have that link in the show notes. I found a fairly new application which provides a graphical interface for part clone. It's called Apart, A-P-A-R-T. <laughs> and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And there are packages for Debian, Ubuntu, Fedora, and Arch. I've tried it out, and it's extremely easy to use. Well, guys, I've listened to your podcast for the past four years, and it helped me to transition from Windows to Linux. Keep up the good work. Regards, Colin. That's exactly why we do the podcast. Colin, thank you. Yes. That's awesome. Thanks, Colin. Our next uh, email comes from Andrew, and he provides help on USB write speed. And he writes, Larry, Emperor Minion, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bill, Senior Chief Junior Vice President Minion. I think he keeps adding words to this. Yes. Uh, it's, it's hilarious. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, in the last listener feedback, someone asks about slow copy speed to USB devices. This, unfortunately, is a rea reality of the technology versus today's expectations. If you remember the good old days of the 386-486 era, uh, the front bus was limited to the speed of the slowest component. These speeds were often 33 MHz, 66 MHz, or 100 MHz, and also and although the processing speed started pulling away in the Pentium era, reaching 200, 300, and even 500 megahertz, the bus speeds were still 100 megahertz. In this case, even with bus speeds of 1 gigahertz or higher, the USB 2 bus speed is still only going to transfer up to 400 megabits, being 60 megabytes 
up to meaning that the two-way communication between the drive and the controller. Add to this a standard USB flash drive can only write at between 2 and 10 megabytes per second. Uh, depending on quality and internal technology, this is where the class numbers uh, letters come in. Use then the best transfer time you can hope for on say a 2 gigabyte video file is about 11 minutes and an average of 3 megabytes per second. Speeds on flash drives are also worse on drives that have previously held data as the old data needs to be zeroed prior to the write, unlike a magnetic drive that only needs to flip the bits that have changed. Flash drives need to make all cell zeros except of the previous state before writing the new data. External hard drives are, are usually faster than flash drives at an average of 30 to 40 megabytes per second as they as they, even SSDs, use different internal controller technology that is faster but more expensive, hence how flash drives are much cheaper. One last point to remember. The copy process indicator in your respective GUI graphical user interface, either Linux, Mac, or Windows, cannot be trusted. Quite often, the process bar will get to 100% and you think the copy is complete. However, this isn't always the case. Big files that copy will take longer and the bar can reach 100%, but depending on how the status is displayed, it can mean that the copy is complete or the transfer uh, into the buffer is complete. If it only refers to the buffer, the copy is not complete, even though the display makes you believe it is. This is why it is important to eject the device prior to removing it as the ejection process ensures the buffer is empty before unmounting it. Hope this helps, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. That was a great amount of information. Yeah, absolutely. And that last bit about the progress bars, the progress indicators, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I never trusted them. <laughs> um, one place it's particularly uh, difficult to trust is in Linux on the startup disk creator that comes with Ooh. Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate and uh, a lot of distributions. Uh, when it says that you have created a boot disk, and it mm -hmm. says process is completed. Don't believe it. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, created a thumb drive with a you know with a, a distribution of Linux on it, and have ejected it before you know after it says that it's completed, but before everything stops, and I end up with a corrupted thumb drive and have to create a Ooh. new one. Uh, and sometimes it takes. You know, almost as long after it says it's completed as it did before it said it was completed to wait for it to absolutely uh, <clears throat> completely finalize itself and save all the final settings and all of that stuff. So, yeah, never, yeah. never, never believe a copy progress bar. Uh, find out it if lies. it's actually finished <laughs> copying. And, yeah, with uh, removable drives, if you eject it, typically it's going to tell you. Uh, you know, it's busy. Uh, and if it tells you it's yeah. busy, believe it's busy and wait <laughs> <laughs> from bitter experience. You think? Yeah. There you go. Okay. 
Okay. Well, Bill, that wraps up all of our emails for this time. Uh, we had wow. quite a few. That was a good amount of emails. Yeah, many of them on the same topic, but that's okay. <laughs> but that's Everybody's fine. got that's an fine. opinion. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it means that we uh, we found a a topic that people were interested in. Yes, exactly, and yes. know something about, or think they know something about, or do know something about, and know something more than we do. All of those options and yeah. more. <laughs> All those options do apply. Yes. Okay. Uh, what do you think we're going to do for our next episode, Bill? I don't know yet because, uh, mm. you know, I've been in the land of the unconnected, so yeah. I'm sure we'll find something to talk about. That oh, we'll... I know I know we'll find something to talk about, and it'll be really, really interesting, like cloning yes. hard drives or something. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, we could always uh, uh, maybe go – maybe have a, a little more advanced uh, uh, one about how to restore disks and stuff after making a backup. We could do that, yes. Or maybe we turn it to our um, Minion Network. <laughs> yes. Minion Network. There go to go. work. Okay. Send us send us info. Yep. <laughs> All right. Until then, you can go to our website at goinglinks.com for articles and show notes as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. If you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux Podcast Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. Music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.